You're listening to the Violence Design Lab podcast, episode 15. They say in theory there's no difference between theory and practice, but in practice there always is. This week, let's discuss how a drill you do in class or a technique you're learning from a treatise will look very different in a bout against an opponent and how it should look different than what you put on stage. Different and yet theoretically the same. How is this possible? Stay with me. Out swords and to work with all. Welcome to the Violence Design Lab podcast. Now here's the mad scientist himself, David Barefoot. Greetings, David here. Welcome to the show. If you're just joining the podcast, I started this project to share with you some of my 25 plus years of experience designing fights and violence for live theater. I'm here to encourage you to enter the world of stage combat, to coach you towards choreographing better fights, and to train you to tackle the challenges of theatrical violence design. Fighting is a complex skill, whether you're fighting as performance, as in stage combat, fighting as a martial art with HEMA or other cultural styles, or fighting for self-defense or survival as a soldier or a law enforcement officer. While a person can learn to fight solely by being placed in fights, in bouts, or with opponents, this style of learning is not ideal. In the best case, such a self-taught fighter usually learns a limited repertoire of tactics or some bad habits that make their fighting less than optimal. And in the worst case, their career is cut short by injury or a sudden case of dead. That means, in most cases, it's best to train in your style of fighting in order to improve your skill. I know, shocking, right? It's that kind of insight that just keeps you coming back to the podcast from week to week. The point that I'm getting to is how training differs from the true fight, as our friend George Silver would say. There are two major perspectives that come up related to this difference. The first one is, I've heard and read the opinions of many people who look down their nose at martial arts drills and say how unrealistic they are and how they could never work in an actual fight. Usually, these opinions are then followed up with a comment about how their ninja longsword foo is so much more deadly and how they train, you know, in elevators to simulate real attack scenarios. But that's another issue. Give you an example. Fiori's first master of the dagger is a classic target. This is the one where a right-handed attacker steps in and stabs, stabs a dagger down at the defender's neck, and the defender blocks with their left hand and then goes on to execute one of several options to disarm or disable the attacker. This technique attacks regular attention from YouTube trolls. In a real knife attack, the comment usually goes, a real attacker would never strike so obviously from so far away, and they would never politely leave their arm there so that you could do your fancy moves on them. And often their argument seems to be further supported by comparing the plates in the treatises to what we see in actual bouts or in martial competitions like Battle of the Nations or whatever. At first glance, what we see in competition often bears only a passing resemblance to the woodcuts in the treatises or to the drills we practice week after week. What we see in a fight doesn't look like what we see in the classroom. Does this mean that the theories we learn don't hold up in practice? The other perspective. As I mentioned in last week's episode, there was a point in my violence design career where I took a hard look at the stage combat techniques I was seeing on stage. Turns out, I was watching in performance exactly what had been practiced, and yet I found it lacking in terms of creating the illusion of people actually fighting against each other. The actors were doing the techniques just as they had been taught in class and rehearsed in the choreography, yet I changed how I designed fights to look more violent, uncontrolled, and to appear more like real fights. 
Does that mean that theories must be thrown out to make good-looking fight? You'll notice that both of these perspectives, the competitive fighting like HEMA or cooperative fighting like stage combat, they result in the same question. Does fight theory hold up in practice? It seems like a simple question, but it's got a complex answer. So, yes and no. Yes, good fight techniques will work in a combat or a performance situation, but no, in a HEMA bout, they will almost never look the same as the classroom drills, and on stage, they shouldn't look the same as the classroom drills. My grandfather was a building contractor who built homes. If you've ever worked on or remodeled a modern stick-built house, you're probably familiar with the concept of a stud wall. This is a wall made of two-by-fours, spaced about 16 inches apart. Know what I'm talking about? Well, when I was a teenager helping my granddad put an addition onto a neighbor's house, he taught me the techniques of building a stud wall. The headers and footers, the king studs, how to do the blocking in between, etc., etc. Yet, once the finished tradesmen did their job, the, like exterior siding, drywall, and painting, once they got through, the room bore almost no resemblance to the stud walls that I had banged together. Does that mean that all the construction techniques my grandfather taught me weren't useful for the house? Of course not. I mean, following building code for solid stud walls is important for the strength of the house, but when the house is complete, that foundational structure is completely buried under the visible facings of the finished wall. I mean, without torturing this metaphor too far, the problem some people have when they watch a heme about is they can't see the stud wall, And when I watch classroom stage combat techniques in your fight performance, my problem is that the studs are all I can see. Now, let me bring this back to fighting because we've already reached the limit of my carpentry expertise. The thing that both instructors and students need to remember is that teaching drills are intended to convey fighting concepts, not to give you the exact physical choreography that will be present in a fight. Now, at this point, I don't care if you're talking about a heme bout or a stage combat sequence, Drill theory is not fight practice. You have to understand what you should be paying attention to. As an example to demonstrate what you should learn from a drill and how it changes in practice, I'm going to break down a, well, quote-unquote simple stage combat technique, the front two-hand chokehold. Now, this is a classic stage combat control move that is taught in nearly every unarmed technique class, so many of my listeners out there probably know it well. I'll explain it in detail first. I'll start with a general overview of the move to get us talking about the same thing. And for ease, I'll identify the two fighters as attacker, you know, the one doing the choking, and defender, the one being choked. And I'll arbitrarily make the attacker male and the defender female so that there's less pronoun confusion. All right, so let me lay out what the drill looks like in the training studio. The attacker and the defender stand facing one another within arm's reach or just outside that measure. The attacker brings his hands together, overlapping them slightly and lining up the thumb of one hand with the index finger of the other, in essence, creating a deep V between the hands that'll fit a neck nicely. Now that V is then brought downward to contact the defender, often forcefully, with the V on each side of the base of the neck, pressing against the clavicle bones and shoulders of the defender. The defender tucks her chin to her chest as if trying to prevent the attacker's hands from squeezing her throat. She also grabs his wrists in a counter grab, seemingly trying to pull his hands off. A struggle ensues until the defender's character falls unconscious or manages to break free. Okay. Now, 
Here are the concepts embedded in that single technique that you should be learning or teaching. The attacker's V hand shape. That hand shape, it keeps the attacker's fingers aligned and out of the way, ensuring that the contact of the initial strike will hurt neither the attacker's finger nor the defender's neck or throat. It also, it builds a strong structure to apply force through for the later struggle. It, it, by engaging the hand and arm muscles to make that V structure rigid, it also makes it difficult for the attacker to constrict the hand to apply any inward pressure against the defender's throat, since doing so requires a completely different set of muscles to engage. And that creates a layer of safety in the move because maintaining the V works as a kind of a muscular mnemonic for the attacker, reminding him that he is not actually throttling his scene partner. Now, the downward motion of the initial contact, that first strike, gives an impact against the defender, creating an audible sound and informing the audience that force is being applied. However, the location of the contact sends power into the, def into the defender's bone structure and shoulders, allowing her to absorb that energy without discomfort. And the angle is important for safety, too. Uh, an upwards or rising motion or a strike that travels straight in that could possibly hit the throat or trachea and injure her. But by attacking downward, the vulnerable windpipe barrier is blocked by the bone structure of the face until the contact is safely established against the upper chest. That downward strike also, of course, cues the audience that an attack is happening, specifically with the goal of strangling the defender because it's heading towards the neck area. The defender's chin tuck. Now, tucking the chin, well, that's a natural reaction to being choked as the victim is trying to block the neck from the attack. But we use this to our advantage, using that chin tuck for two additional purposes. First, lowering the chin hides the throat from view, blocking the audience from seeing that the windpipe is not being directly threatened. And second, by tucking the chin into the point of the attacker's V handshape, the defender's jaw becomes a secondary bony structure to absorb the force of the struggle and to protect the soft tissue of the trachea. The defender's counter grab. Now that's another natural reaction to a choke. It's trying to attempt to pull the attacker's hand away from the throat. We create this picture with the counter grab, but we use it for a different purpose. Instead of trying to remove the attacker's hands, the defender vigorously pulls the attacker's hands inward creating a strong cooperative structure connecting attacker and defender for the struggle. Maintaining that pressure against the attacker's hands also energizes the muscles in the defender's hands and arms, allowing the audience to perceive that she is fighting vigorously in her own defense. The struggle. Now, while there may be a few dramatic exceptions, Desdemona being one, most people struggle against their own asphyxiation, right? Because by this point, the technique has established many layers of safety and structure. The attacker and defender are free to push and pull against each other to simulate a struggle. Most of this action should be led by the attacker as he is the aggressor, though the defender should be struggling to escape. The struggle may have specific moments that are planned by the designer, but each little motion should not be overplanned or the actors will tend to present a very stylized artificial struggle. So why would we change this, right? This technique is a time-honored stage combat standard. The safety techniques are solid, the story is told clearly, so why would we want to mess with it? Well, because all those points I just discussed in the technique, those are the 2x4s, the studs in your wall. If you simply cut and paste that technique, that teaching drill, onto the stage or in front of the camera, the illusion will not hold up.
the tripod the tripod of stage combat, meaning safety, story, and illusion, it falls down if even one element is not accomplished. Do you need proof? Take a moment to gently constrict your own airway. Don't hurt yourself, of course. Simply apply enough pressure to be briefly uncomfortable. Go ahead. Done? Okay, where were your hands? Down on your clavicle? Yeah, probably not. They were likely much higher, like, I don't know, up around your windpipe. And so here begins some problems with the classroom technique. First of all, people intuitively understand that a dangerous choke should be higher on the throat than the placement of that V hand shape they see on the defender's clavicle or bone structure of their shoulder. Now, tucking the defender's chin down does help the illusion somewhat, but it still doesn't look terribly dangerous. Also, remember how we mentioned that the downward motion of that initial strike was a clue to the audience that an attack was happening? Yeah, it also serves as a kinesthetic symbol that stage combat is happening. In essence, not only does the move tell the audience that a choke is happening with the characters, but it is such an iconic motion on stage that it is also reminding them that they are actors doing stage combat and that what they're seeing is not really dangerous violence. Now, that emotional distance may be fine for some genres or certain productions, but it may not be what the desire the designer wants to say in every situation. That big downward motion just telegraphs the attacker's intention. And since the audience sees the attack coming, they may wonder why the victim of the choke doesn't see it coming also. I mean, if the defender makes no attempt to defend herself from such an obvious attack, it makes her seem complicit in the move, which reminds the audience again that they're watching stage combat, thereby breaking them out of the world of the play. So would I throw out this technique? Not at all. As I like to tell my students, good safety techniques never die, but they should be buried alive. Yeah, feel free to tweet that. Now, uh, because we're trying to present the illusion of violence and danger, we need to hide all the safeties from the audience while making sure they're still in place for our fellow actor. In other words, you know, fight safely, but don't look like you're fighting safely. So let me give us some suggestions on how I might skin the bones of that front chokehold to make it work on stage. Now, understand, I'm only giving you one way that I have staged this before. My goal here is to demonstrate how you can take the safety and story principles, keeping them, but masking them under layers of misdirection in order to fool the audience's eyes and ears. But what I'm not doing is giving you another static formula to just replace the old one. Get it? Okay. All right, let's start with the attacker's hands. The traditional technique asks the attacker to place both hands in that overlapping V shape. However, that is not the look of hands that are actually trying to squeeze something. To better simulate the look of grabbing the victim's throat, we need to alter the shape of the attacker's hand, but keep the safety in place. So rather than the traditional two-handed V, I might have the attacker's hand make a shape like a sideways C. You know, the same grip you might use to lift a soda can for drinking. You can do this with one hand or both, with the second hand, if you're going to add it, overlapping the thumbs. Personally, I like to start the attack with a single hand going for the throat because it's faster and more sudden. But just like the V hand shape in the drill, the attacker energizes the hand and arm muscles, stiffens them up to make this C hand shape rigid. That allows the choke to seem forceful to the audience, but again protects the defender by engaging different muscles than the ones you would use to actually constrict the hand around the throat. Okay, the hold location. 
Remember a moment ago when I pointed out that we don't choke people by grabbing their sternum? Right, so let's hide that safety. That claw hand shape is now placed over the front of the throat, covering the Adam's apple. However, we still need a solid connection between attacker and defender in order to struggle convincingly and safely. But because we can't apply any amount of force to the defender's windpipe, we can't establish a strong structure between attacker and defender using the fingers around the throat. Instead, the connection is maintained by the attacker pushing with the heel of the hand, which rests just below the base of the neck, on top of the sternum, or just below the suprasternal notch, and it's further strengthened by the defender's countergrab on the wrist. So using that bone structure, pressure can be applied inward towards the sternum, rather than upward toward the throat or on the sides of the neck. And as always, constrictive pressure around the throat must never be applied to the defender. Now a big one, the movement into contact. The initial movement to establish the choke, that's a great place to play with the audience's expectations and traditional stage combat conventions. One of the problems with that standard downward movement is because the audience sees the attack being made, it's logical to think that the defender should also see it coming and react to it. Remember last week's episode on turn-taking? Yeah, let's not do that, right? So let's give a possible scenario to change up the initial grab. Let's imagine an offender who's not particularly trained in self-defense, like many characters in plays who are victims of choking attacks. So at the start of the attack, the attacker's left hand shoots upward. Yes, upward toward the defender's throat. Now keep in mind, this attack is cosmetic only. The attacker will not make contact with the throat in this initial attack. So the defender leans backward or steps away from the attack and uses both hands to block and grab the attacker's left arm, pulling it down towards you know, her waist or the center of her body. Then the attacker's right hand tries to succeed where his left failed. This second attack comes in in a downward motion and lands just below the throat. So picture this. The attack that lands still comes down onto the sternum like the drill, but now this is the natural direction. Since the other three hands, meaning the attacker's left and and both of the defenders, are in the way, blocking an upward or straight-in angle of attack. And again, this downward angle sends any force into the defender's chest rather than her neck. It now also looks like the attacker is a little more desperate in going for any place close to the throat to later get into somewhere more vulnerable. But since both the defender's hands are still engaged, keeping the attacker's left hand from gaining a hold, the attacker's right hand can get in, and it comes down with some force making a sound the audience can hear, but again, only against the defender's sternum. Now the defender tucks her chin as a natural reaction to protect her throat. And then the attacker's right hand, still free, slides up, going for the throat, but clearly only succeeding in grabbing the defender around the jaw, not the windpipe. Now again, we're playing with traditional stage combat illusions here. We want the audience to see that we're grabbing around the jaw, not the throat, yet. So in order to deal with this new threat, the defender moves one of her hands from the attacker's left arm to instead grab his right wrist or arm. Of course, in actuality, the defender's countergrab is still pulling the attacker in against her body rather than away as the audience perceives it. So next, in my example, the attacker jerks his left hand out of the defender's grasp and puts it on her forehead, forcing, you know, of course it's all planned, but forcing her head back to expose her throat. 
Then the attacker's right hand is then able to move to the final position with that claw, that C hand shape, covering the throat and the heel of his hand uh, on her sternum. Now, this last move, it doesn't have to be rapid, and it has the additional safety of the defender's counter-grab on the right wrist, preventing any forceful movement against her throat. And then, the final position before the struggle clearly shows the attacker's right hand wrapped around the throat with the defender's chin high, but with her hands in a counter-grab on the attacker's wrist. So you see, we get to the same place with the same safeties, but we get there by burying the technique using realistic reactions that either lead to the motions and positions we want or misdirect what we're really doing. Now let's look at the struggle after we get that choke established. To perform a cooperative struggle, as you might call it, to simulate the ongoing attack and the defender's resistance, again, we need a solid connection between attacker and defender. Now, in a real attack, that's created by the hand squeezing the windpipe. But since we obviously can't do that, we've established it in a different way, as we said. However, designers often allow this grab-counter-grab structure to become static, resulting in a a struggle that looks really stagey and false. Basically, all four feet of attacker and defender just stand there, and they kind of work their upper bodies back and forth, and it looks really dumb. But... Since the attacker is not really grabbing the defender, we have to maintain a solid connection between these two fighters, right? Otherwise, the attacker's hands come away from the defender's body and our illusion is blown. So you need a strong connection, but it's important to vary how that connection is made so the fight seems like a dynamic struggle. I mean, obviously a counter-grab by the defender is one method to form a strong structure, but another way is to press the defender against a wall or onto the table or onto the floor, in essence slamming the victim against something unyielding. Using a hard surface to counteract the attacker's pressure, that allows the defender to release her counter-grab and to do other things like striking back at the attacker or trying to pry his fingers off her throat. Shifting structure points during the struggle maintains the safety of the move while highlighting the changing tactics of each fighter, which creates a more interesting struggle. All right, so I've probably beaten that horse sufficiently into the ground, and that's just one stage combat technique. The takeaway here is that you have to understand that training drills are about fight principles. They're not about choreography, whether you're learning stage combat or trying to up your bouting game. I mean, in a competitive environment, you probably won't see that obvious single attention intact like the uh, you know attack that the treatise seems to show and the one you drilled so often but if you're paying attention to what the drill is really teaching you after all the first false starts and feints and aborted attacks are done and you find yourself in that crossing you'll realize hey i know what to do here it, it, it's just like the drill and on stage knowing what drills are really teaching will allow you to know why a particular action is safe, and to keep it that way, even though you bury all those safeties under the character emotions and all the distractions that are meant to hide the cooperation from the audience. Then, when you've done your job well and friends come to you after the show and say, wow, that fight scene, that was really dangerous, you can respond, thank you, I'm glad you enjoyed the show. Hey, if you're enjoying this podcast, please let others know about it. One way to do that is to head on over to iTunes and leave me some stars and a review on the podcast page. And for the rest of May, as I mentioned last episode, got a special offer for you. If you do leave a review on iTunes, I'll include you in my private Facebook group called the Historical Stage Violence Forum. 
It's an invitation-only group for people who are interested in both historical fighting styles and stage combat. And you can interact and ask questions of me and from members from around the world who share our interest. So do that. Let me know about it just to make sure that I, I've noticed the review come in. And then I'll send you an invite on Facebook. Now normally this group is only open to my Patreon supporters, but for this month, for May, I'm opening it up to anyone who leaves me a review on iTunes. Oh, and speaking of Patreon, again, this podcast is entirely supported by the generosity of you, the listeners. You'll notice there are no ads or corporate sponsorships. If you'd like to help out to keep this project going week after week, head on over to patreon.com slash violencedesignlab and Thanks enter your pledge, uh, whether on a monthly basis or a one-time donation. Each level of support has its rewards, including transcript of these regular episodes and full uncut video footage of my interview episodes. Thanks in advance for your support. I really appreciate it. Couldn't do it without you. So until next week, keep the fights on stage and peace in your life. David, out.